friends, frenemies, strangers, future friends and frenemies. Welcome to the Subtext Podcast. This is Brian James Polak, the host of this playwriting pod. Normally we come out every month, but if you're a regular listener, you know we did not have an episode last month, last month being July 2021. And you know, uh, sometimes life is hard, and life has been hard, and uh, I'm working through it, but here I am right now, finishing this one, to send out to you out in playwriting podcast land. I'm recording at the moment in a hammock right by a lake in northern Wisconsin. I'm looking at a beautiful blue sky with the periodic clouds passing through this little canopy of green leaves in this tree to which my hammock is connected. It's very peaceful right now. Normally I have a, uh, a script of sorts in front of me, making sure I cover all my bases and say all the things I need to say uh, before and after the episode, but I do not have that, so I'm, I'm sort of winging it at the moment. Uh, this month's guest is Jacqueline Goldfinger. She is a fantastic playwright and somebody I have known of for many years, but I never actually got a chance to meet her until we recorded this conversation. Uh, Jackie has a book coming out called Playwriting with Purpose. I actually have the title memorized. Playwriting with Purpose, a guide and workbook for new playwrights. It's a book for new playwrights, obviously. It's also a book for teachers of playwrights. It's a book for playwrights who maybe you're not even new and you just want something to, to, to work through as you're figuring your playwriting stuff out. It's also a book for people who love playwrights and want to gift something to playwrights. I recommend finding out more information about playwriting, playwriting with purpose at Jacqueline's website, JacquelineGoldfinger.com. That is where you can find everything you need to know about Jacqueline and everything else you need to know. You're going to learn over the duration of this conversation that I recorded with Jackie June 28th, 2021 at her house in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And on a side note, this was the first live in-person conversation I recorded since the previous times. Since February of 2020, I hadn't sat in the room with another playwright to record this in a year and a half. And I have to say it was the best feeling to do the most basic thing, which was sit at a table with a cup of tea and just talk about life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Like in, in it. You're we in the city. Are. We're, we got so lucky. Um, a couple years ago, the city of Philadelphia had a like there were just a ton of abandoned houses in Center City. And so what they did was basically if people who'd abandoned the houses and not paid the taxes, if they would sell it to someone who'd redo it and live in it, then they wouldn't have to pay all the tax penalties. So there were three or four on this street and like artists in our community snapped them up. So a lot of us could definitely not afford to live in these neighborhoods now, but because the city had that great plan, 
now we have these gorgeous streets that are all maintained, that have a real mixed income, lots of artists along with, there's a hospital next nearby, so doctors and nurses and um, it's really nice. It's like the cutest, quaintest street. I've, I mean, I've been in Philadelphia for all of 24 hours, <laughs> not even 24 hours. I think I came here once maybe when I was in college a million years ago, but this is really my, I consider my first time here and and uh, and I just I took the little turn onto onto your street and I was like, oh, this is so nice. I Thank like you. I love raising the kids on what I think of as Sesame Street. Yeah. <laughs> and all the neighbors know each other. For sure. It's yeah. Great. Yeah. Where does Oscar the Grouch live? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> we do have an older gentleman on the corner who's not thrilled that he now has to live on the street with children. <laughs> and so we're always like, just go around. Just yeah. go around Mr. B's house. It's right, fine. Right, I love it. He even <laughs> has a nickname. Yes. <laughs> How long have you been in Philly? We've been here almost 12 years now, which is amazing to think of. We came from San Diego. My partner was finishing his PhD fellowship at Scripps Research Institute, mm-hmm. and I was the literary associate at La Jolla Playhouse. Um, and so we basically, once he finished his PhD research, it was like wherever we'll take him, we were gonna go. Follow the work. Follow the work, because yeah. it's not like playwriting pays the bills. Um, so we got incredibly lucky. We didn't know anybody in Philly. He had some cousins out in the suburbs, but like no one knew the city. And we got here, and the theater community was so welcoming. Like the first email I sent, someone was like, "Let's have coffee tomorrow." And let's talk about this. Um, Allison Heishman in Azuka Theater um, was the first to respond. And that's one of the things I love about Philly is that it's the theater and art community is people who really want to make art and care about art and love art. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not see it in newspapers or in a museum or wherever, but it's really about the work, mm-hmm. which we love. Mm-hmm. Where'd you grow up originally? I grew up in right outside Tallahassee, Florida. So in rural North Florida, um, right above Tate's Hell, which my play, The Arsonist, about the father-daughter arson team, is set in Tate's Hell. We grew up just uh, north of the entry to Tate's Hell. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember most from your childhood? Oh, my God. Pine trees as tall as the sky, just miles and miles of so forest funny. of pines. Like, who, and most people don't think of that when they think of Florida. Nobody knows the panhandle. No. Nobody knows North Florida. It's a separate state from Florida. Absolutely. I mean, we really are. People joke that we're three states. Mm-hmm. It's it's North Florida, which is really an extension of like Louisiana, South Alabama. Mm-hmm. Central Florida, which is really where a lot of the Cuban immigrants came in, first generation, second generation, great communities from Cuba and Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic. And then South Florida, which is all the retirees. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly different populations, no matter where you go in our state. Mm -hmm. Which I love. Like That's the kind of diversity that I'm interested in and I try to put on stage, right? I think that's interesting. Um, when people who have completely different values and ways of life and expectations about the world come into contact. Do you still have family there? I do. Uh, my my parents still live there. Uh, they felt very smart during the pandemic because they never had to leave their property or see anyone. <laughs> I guess 
So they were like, see, we told you this was the right place to live. <laughs> None of us got sick. Um, so yeah, so we go down there a lot. We take the kids. It's great. I love that we're able to give our kids city life and country life and a taste of different ways of living. Mm-hmm. How does one from Tate's Hill find their way to the theater? Um, it is an odd journey, but a fun one. I always loved writing and telling stories growing up. Um, North Florida, Tallahassee, wonderful storytellers. Of course, all the swamp storytellers. Um, it's just, storytelling is so much in everyone's blood that it happens in all the time in all kinds of places. Um, so I always love storytelling. I think that I, the woman, we have a woman who was brilliant and she um, would go to all the schools and she had a big apron that she'd sewn a lot of pockets on and she knitted little finger puppets. And in each pocket were the finger puppets to a different story. <laughs> so when you're in elementary school, she was wonderful. She would come with her big apron, with her, you know, 40 pockets, each with different <laughs> finger puppets that she'd knitted in it. And you got to pick a pocket, but you didn't know what was in the pocket. It was a surprise. I don't know why this tickles me so much. It's so it funny just to imagine wonderful. what's going to come We loved imagining what would come out of the pockets. And then there were some pockets that were just characters that then we had to help her tell the story, which was great. Um, but yeah, which I think, I think she was sponsored by Parks and Rec. And she would go around to the elementary schools. And so she would come around to each classroom and do a couple stories and pick a couple pockets. And she would do the stories with the hand-knitted pocket puppets. Um, and it was fantastic. It was, it was always my favorite day of the year when she would come. Um, and so I was writing kind of stories and poems and poetry and whatnot just growing up just because I enjoyed it. And a lot of storytellers around me. And eventually in middle school, my, I had a teacher who said, you're actually not writing stories anymore. Like everything is 90% dialogue. You're writing something called a play. And so she uh, recommended plays for me to read that I could get out of the library. And so I really came to theater through, um, through reading the plays in terms of what we think of as formal theater. Right. Um, do you, do you, theater. Well, by the way, do you remember this teacher's name? You know, I don't, and I feel really terrible. Uh, but uh, but she was great. She was a middle school, raw <laughs> elementary uh, English teacher. She was on the right side of the building. Um, do, do you remember the plays she recommended? It was, yes. I mean, I, I remember the plays. Like I remember reading Glass Menagerie, which I think was the first one I read, and my head just exploding. Wow. Um, a lot of, uh, down there, when you think of plays, a lot of them are what you think of kind of what you take in English classes mm-hmm. rather than in theater classes, which are, the contents of the plays are different. So, you know, uh, I grew up reading and reading a lot of um, uh, Tennessee Williams, August Wilson, William Shakespeare, Eugene O'Neill, kind of what you think of as classic plays. Before we hit record earlier, we were talking about um, young people learning the foundations of like what theater is and the mm-hmm. place that a play fit, where a play fits in to that. Uh, did you have like when you were reading these plays? Did you understand like the context around the the, the artistic context around the thing you were reading? You know, I don't think I really did. 
but I was so intrigued by it. And I think I'm lucky because I think I had that innately mm-hmm. that I was just so intrigued by these people. Instead of doing story theater where you sit and tell the story directly to the audience, like you have the people tell the story basically to each other for an audience I, that I figured it out. And then I was very lucky. And I remember this teacher's name. Miss Pelham and Mrs. Spears, who were English and theater teachers in my high school, um, who were really great about helping us understand that theater is not solely literature and needs to be on its feet. Mm. And so they had us read the plays aloud and take different roles and talk about how we felt in those roles. And first of all, I think it just improved the students in the class communication and ability to communicate and empathize. Um, but that also helped me understand more of what it meant to actually put a play on its feet rather than as a piece of literature. Mm. But if I did not have that natural inclination, I think that reading a lot of those plays without a foundation would have turned me off to theater. And that's kind of what you were referencing earlier. We were talking about, you know, uh, students are often thrown into Shakespeare first when they have no idea what the foundations are. And then, of course, they're completely lost. It's like throwing a kid into physics without without giving the math lessons first, right? And so my book, Playwriting with Purpose, a guide and workbook for new playwrights, what I'm trying to do is address some of the issues I've seen in theater education. And so many theater educators, all of their work comes from the best absolute place. And they are all well-intentioned. But I think sometimes when you're trying to keep with students in the school, it's hard to stay on top of what is actually happening in the world of American playwriting. And so the book um, is a mixture of many lectures on craft and industry um, with inserted uh, reading recommendations that are half contemporary, half classical. So kind of depending on what type of students you're working with or what kind of students you are, you can pick. Um, and then there are also writing prompts. So essentially, um, whether you're a teacher who's going to use it in class or someone who's just interested in theater but might not have the foundation, you could pick up this book, start at page one, and by the end have a draft of a full-length play, have some sense of theater history and where our playwriting structure came from, and have hopefully a very deep well of... Um, lists of plays and productions you can both watch online and read to get a sense of where American theater is going. Mm -hmm. You were talking about how in your book there are like plays that you um, recommend. You recommend. Uh, I'm curious to go back to your schooling when you're, you said you were in middle school, you had like Tennessee Williams recommended to you by this teacher when you were, when you were in high school and you started to sort of see these plays realized on their feet and you started to get a sense of what theater was, um, did, did you start to read other plays? Were other plays being fed to you by these teachers? Absolutely. I, I was so lucky because so much of this was done with teachers on their own time. So shout out to all the teachers who work overtime to make sure the arts can happen. Um, but yes, they would give me recommendations. We also started to go see, uh, there's like a regional theater festival in Florida which I assume is still going, of high school students. Um, unfortunately, it's not KCACTF. I've done that one. I love it. But there was, at the time, there was another regional one. And so we got to go see what other schools were doing. 
And so also seeing what other schools brought, everything from like Pirandello to Sam Shepard's Berry Child to, <laughs> I know, right? A Raisin in the Sun was one I saw first mm-hmm. with students. Um, that it was, it was fantastic to me and I just couldn't get enough. So I read everything, but I was also just like limited because this was before wide use of the internet. So, like, I read everything in the public library. And so, like, the public library collection in our area was very interestingly curated. When I looked back on it, it was, like, David Hare and David Mamet. And I don't think there were any writers of color. Um, I think we had Teresa Rebeck. But, like, it was so interesting to think, like, wow, that I was reading that and looking back I had no idea what I was really reading but I just got so excited by the potential of it yeah um that I was drawn in and I was very lucky to have as I said uh, Mrs. Spears and Miss Pelham in our high school who like no one's on stage we had a little auditorium where we did ceremonies and stuff there's no one using it this week okay this week everybody write your own scene and then stage it and then we're going to show it to each other Right. So teachers who were just like, yes, we're going to read it, but read other theater. But we're also going to like give you a chance to make some yourself. And that was transformative because when I first saw my words being spoken on stage, I just was like, yep, I'm in. This is it. This is the rest of my life. I may or may not be good at this. I may or may not make any money at this. But like it was just a lightning bolt. That was it. Do you remember what you wrote that first time? Yes, and it was terrible. <laughs> so <laughs> I will preface it. I did. I wrote, I had just read a lot of translations of kind of the classic Greek, like Oedipus Rex and things like that. And so I wrote um, basically in the form of a Greek tragedy about a homeless man who was sitting on a bench and like he was being harassed by different people. And then in between him being harassed in the background on a like raised level you saw an image uh, a scene from his past that like connected somehow with the person who was harassing him so like the first person to come by and harass him was like a lady with a shopping cart right and then so the image you saw was like him and his wife getting divorced that scene and then like you'd come back and you'd see him get harassed by like a bus driver and then there'd be a scene later that so it was a one act thing was like a 30 minute play yeah called on the park bench beside me about like the backstory of this homeless person wow um so that was that was my first like actual play that wasn't just like a scene or a yeah yeah and and the teacher let us stage it and not only did she let it stage it but she liked it so she <laughs> had the other english classes come in so like we got to stage it and then we got to have an audience of other students and it was it was incredible do you know if anybody else in your in your class or in your school while you were there ended up in the theater i don't think so there was a rumor that Faye Dunaway was in our theater one day for some reason, like years and years ago. Like she stopped in Tallahassee for something. <laughs> so of course she went to the county high school. Like looking back, I'm like, that there's no way. She went to like the county high school in North Florida for whatever reason she was passing through. Um, that is such a great. That was the rumor. A great room, small town rumor <laughs> about a celebrity passing through. I love it. Um, no, but they have, they've grown the theater program. Um, and that's, I'm really excited about that. The, re- the reason I ask, because uh, I, you know, a recurring theme 
in all of these conversations I record with playwrights is about there's a there's usually a teacher like more often than mm-hmm. not there's a teacher from the past that did that that planted the seed or nudged or or, or really aggressively fed theater or yes. plays in some way like they saw something and then helped make it happen and and what I find interesting is that like in your case there was one of you out yeah. of hundreds like out of a lot absolutely students there was one and how that then relates to the place the theater uh has in our culture right like absolutely like if these kids and i'm gonna take a quick break and go back for a minute yeah i want to do a shout out the woman who had the who wore the apron to elementary schools i remember her name now her name was miss shelley so shout out michelle shout out michelle I still love your apron puppetry. It's still the best. Um, But coming back to your question. um, Yeah, I think, and I also think that if, like the students that I grew up with, if they had read um, a Cheese's Hutchinson play, or they had read, um, you know, a Jim Afima play, Gina Afima play, or if they would have read early on something that was more accessible and related to their lives, they would have been so much more excited about theater. They would have had a much better foundation to then build onto if they wanted to go into the quote unquote classic playwrights. Um, but you have to feed that connection early. And when that connection is severed because you're teaching something that the student is not gonna connect to no matter what subject it is, that connection gets severed and that's it. It's done. They don't want to go back to the theater ever. Yeah, for some reason we work forward chronologically from the Greeks and Shakespeare to the present. So if you're not still, con- if you're not really along for the ride, you're never going to get the contemporary writers. No, and that's what, once I did teach, I was hired to teach a theater history class and a community college. And just because these kids had no concept, like maybe they'd seen a musical um, you know, but that was all. I flipped the book, so I started at the end of the theater history book and taught the contemporary stuff so that they could relate. Um, and then went back and said, see, this came from this, and this came from this. And the students loved the class that way. They had a much better understanding. They did much better on their end-of-semester tests and papers. But the faculty were so, like, they thought it was obscene that I taught it that way. <laughs> but I was never asked to back again to teach. Um, but it, it's amazing that if you actually look at what do students need rather than what are the faculty and administrative expectations, then we can really change how we teach theater in a way that's going to make this next generation, whether or not they become artists, they'll become more avid theater goers Mm -hmm. and more empathetic people. Yes. And not just possibly the avid theater goers might even be. Um, a, a leap sometimes, My, yeah. but just having it on the consciousness would yes. be a huge improvement, right? Absolutely. What I love, like I know some people have criticized uh, Jeremy O'Harris um, and some folks who've really gone out there and and invoked kind of pop culture Vogue, Marie Clarie, Vanity Fair. Um, and done articles and photo shoots. And I'm like, hell yes. Like, that's if we want 
theater to actually be a major force of change, then we have to be engaged with the popular culture. Yeah, Tennessee Williams used to appear on the talk shows. Absolutely. Uh, Arthur Miller appeared on the talk shows. Uh, You know, I see what Jeremy O'Harris is doing, and, and I hear people saying, why is he doing all this stuff? And I'm like, because he can. Yes. Like, hell yeah. And and he's done, and there have been a number of people who've done it, but he's just the first that comes to mind today, a phenomenal job of opening doors. When we talk about access, you know, there's all different types of access, but just he makes, he doesn't say, you have to have this amount of information to come see my show. He's like, it's open for everyone, and everyone's going to have an interpretation, and that's great. Well, and just to continue the uh, Jeremy O'Hara's Love Fest a little bit, he's <laughs> yes. also also used actual dollars to support other playwrights. Like, yes, he got a big, huge, fat deal from HBO, and he's like, "I'm sharing, I'm sharing this pie with others." He's and, phenomenal, and that is so like amazing. That's like so aspirational. If I like, yes. I will never get that kind of deal from HBO. Right, but but I'm going to continue to apply that kind of thinking to the version of the HBO deal that I end up with. Right. It might be, a, it might be no money, but, but still the, the showing that level of support uh, for our colleagues is just like, it was, it's stunning to see him do it. It is right. A high tide rise raises all boats and then everyone has a better chance at fishing. Um, I can't remember quite the folktale that comes from. Um, But that idea that we are not in competition with each other as artists. We're in competition with ourselves to make ourselves stronger and better at what we want to do. We are in an industrial conversation with producers because really what they need to do is to leave more slots open for new work instead of producing the same things over and over, right? But artist to artist, all we really have is each other. And so that's when you see things like what Jeremy O'Harris did or what Paula Vogel uh, is doing with her At the Gate series uh, of the plays that you'd never heard of. Um, Those types of initiatives are really what make our community grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, When when did you start to become aware of the theater, the American theater. The American theater. Yeah. I saw my first uh, professional theater show actually in high school. My uh, uh, Mrs. Spears rented a bus and took us all, it's like a six-hour drive, to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival to see one of their rep days, which was wild. So we saw like three or four shows in a day at Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Shout out, Alabama Shakes. We love you. <laughs> Um, and that blew my mind because like as great as like my friend Margaret was at doing Stella (laughs) (laughs) and speaking her name Desire, like the lady on stage was a little bit better (laughs) and I did understand the play way more after seeing the professional production. Um, so I loved that. Um, I missed the connection a little bit like the Miss Shelley connection I still have that sometimes in large theaters 
where I think the large theater experience can be lovely, but like I do miss the uh, Miss Shelley, I'm going to sit and tell you a story one on one. Um, I love black box spaces. Mm. I love when you can really be, I love site specific work where you get to be close to the actors. There's something to me about physical proximity that makes it more special. Mm. Um, but seeing it was life changing because uh, being at Alabama Shakespeare Festival showed me that it wasn't just a hobby that I enjoyed, but this is something that I could do for my life. Like this is an actual career path, mm -hmm. which had not been something that had ever occurred to me. So what did you do with that information or that, or that understanding of yourself? Well, so then I was, I think that was junior year. Uh, and then senior year we went back, which was wonderful. Um, and what I did was when I got to college, I went to Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, which is right outside Atlanta. It's a fantastic college. Um, and it's small, which is one of the reasons I went because I wanted to be there, there to be like eight people in my class on Dante, right? Not 200. Mm -hmm. Um, I started going to places like the Alliance Theater, Seven Stages, in Atlanta, which if you haven't seen the evolution at Seven Stages, check it out online. They've just created a new artistic model that's very exciting. Um, and Little Five Points at that time, which is kind of the artsy district in Atlanta, had a ton of small theaters. And so I started, and I couldn't afford to go to all the theaters, so I would call and say, if I give out programs, can I see the show for free? And they were like, yes. <laughs> so it was often me and like two or three like very elderly women who I had to help up the stairs giving out programs or serving really bad coffee in mm -hmm. remission. I remember there was one theater where a guy came up to get coffee and he's like, I'd like a coffee. And I'm like, you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is really like, this has like been here like all day and they didn't change it and they won't let me change it. Like <laughs> pick something else. Oh, um, he's like, okay, thank you. Um, but yeah, and, and I did the same, you know, the Alliance Theater, uh, as well as the orchestra there, if you volunteer uh, to usher, you can see it for free. Mm. So I saw everything for free. Um, and so to the point of, like, I actually, for one of my senior projects, I created this, like, sea show theater in Atlanta thing, and I took other students as part of a senior project. Mm. Um, but it was a wonderful, I think it was a really great introduction because um, Atlanta was small enough to be manageable. Uh, I think if I would have started out in New York or Chicago or LA, I just would have been overwhelmed because I was from a smaller community. Uh, but by starting out in Atlanta, people were very friendly, lots of different type of theaters. Like you're seeing a theater in someone's, uh, you're seeing a show in someone's house or you're seeing it at the Alliance with a thousand other people, right? Huge spectrum of types of work places to work I really got a great sense of okay this is what this industry is so I felt very empowered that like even if I always have to have a day job which has always been in the back of my mind because I have to make money I can always do this work um and then I was lucky enough to get an observership at Florida Studio Theater uh at the end of college and that was where I saw and it was paid I was like oh here are the mechanisms, here's how playwrights actually work. They work in literary departments, or they write screenplays, they do this and that. But having an observership where I got to see what, how playwrights actually functioned in everyday life mm. as they were developing plays at FST 
um, helped me kind of make a life plan about, all right, this is, this is what I know I can do and what's out there. Uh, how, did you, how did you, or when did you learn how a playwright gets their, like does the part where you write a play and then send it out to the world? To the world? Like, like when did that part start to? Well, Florida Studio, part of the observership was reading plays for them and then having conversations with the literary staff. So you were invited to be a part of a literary staff meeting. So I got to sit in literary staff meetings having read the plays that they were discussing and then hear them talk about it. And that was absolutely a part of my education. Oh, they actually love this play, but it doesn't fit what they need for next season. So, oh, this is, like, I start to understand the business and the matrix of needs that theaters have. And that really helped me later figure out how to pitch my plays. Like, for example, um, my first full-length professionally produced play, it's a dark comedy called The Terrible Girls, about three women who run a um, little restaurant on Interstate 10 in Florida and one of them accidentally keeps killing her boyfriends. Oops. Um, <laughs> dark comedy. Uh, and so I was able to see, oh, so what I need to do is find theaters for this play that it hits a lot of their matrix points, right? A lot of the things that they need. So what other plays that I've been reading live in the same universe? Once I isolated that, I just Googled those plays and was like, here are the 10 places those plays have been produced. I'm going to send my plays to those 10 places because they obviously have an affection for this type of work. Mm. Um, so it helped me, the FST kind of observer, observership helped me understand how it worked mechanically. It also helped save my soul because I began to understand that everything is not based on the writing. I really thought going in that like if you wrote something awesome, that it was going to get produced, that that was the metric. Um, and it is not. No, learning that sausage making is and, hard, and, but and, important. But it, but actually, kind of rare. It's hard to yeah. like. There aren't a lot of jobs where you're on the inside of the theater decision making process, where you get to see plays people love mm-hmm. get rejected. You know, like, and it's hard for the literary managers too. I mean, at FST, the literary manager had a whole pile of plays that he absolutely loved, but FST couldn't produce. And so he was one of those generous angels of the theater who whenever he saw a show or he saw a theater that was looking for something that was kind of in the realm of one of those plays he loved, he would send it to their theater. And he would say, we couldn't use this at FST because it doesn't fit what we need, but I think it might be good for you. Mm. Um, and it's like, it's those angels who make American theater and especially those of us who come up through more non-traditional routes, like fringe routes, um, rather than grad school or grad school, but maybe, you know, not one of the big five, like those are the people that often help us forward our work and we, we are, should be so grateful to them. Shout out literary managers. Yes. hundred percent. hundred percent. Uh, so I, what, I, what I'm loving is, is hearing about all of these experiences you had and how that informed the, the beginning of your career. Uh, I'm, I, 
am dying to find out why you ended up going to film school. Yes. So you, so here's this person that is like finding all this inspiration and learning all this stuff about theater and the process and where to send plays. And then, and then it was, it was a matter of economics, which I hate to say, but it's real. So I'm going to say it. It's like, I ended up back in Tallahassee, which is a wonderful city, but does not have a, a, a big professional theater scene. In fact, there, there are zero professional theaters in Tallahassee. Um, and I just economically, because, you know, we talked about this earlier too, that the wealth of the industry often determines, or the wealth of the artist and the artist's parents often determines their trajectory. Um, I couldn't figure a way. I knew I wasn't ready to start my own theater company, even though I had friends and we'd stage stuff and gallery spaces and stuff. But I knew, and I knew that they weren't trained in the way that, like, I knew professionally I wanted my work to be produced, which is really hard to admit because they're all people that I love dearly personally. Um, and I knew I wanted more, but I also knew that I had to get a job that would pay for myself. And so um, I read an article. This is going to seem like crazy country cracker talk, <laughs> but it's real. So I read an article <laughs> in the New York Times about how playwrights are getting into television and how television, or I'm sorry, maybe it was the New Yorker. It was some New York publication um, that, that was probably at the coffee shop where I worked because I was assistant manager of a coffee shop um, back home. Um, and they were talking about how well playwrights could get paid to write television and that television was uh, often very much like a one-act play. And I fancied myself quite a good one-act playwriter because <laughs> I'd been doing it since high school. <laughs> Hello. So, of course, mine were perfect now that I was out of college. Um, and, yeah, so I... <laughs> I couldn't afford, like, I, so I started looking at uh, film school applications. Thing great, right? Like, one of the things that I've always been good at getting scholarships and things, and so I'll get scholarships, and I'll go, to, I'll go to film school, and then I'll get a job in TV, and then I'll make a lot of money writing TV shows, and then I'll do, also be able to afford to do my playwriting. That was the plan. I was like, if I get on Law & Order, I can write all <laughs> kinds. They need to read The Terrible Girls. Um... <laughs> So that was my plan, but I only had enough money saved to apply for one grad school because I don't know if you know this, but it's really expensive to apply to grad school. I did not know this at the time. So I only had enough money to apply to one, and I always wanted to see California. So on that wonderfully logical and well-researched <laughs> basis, I applied to the most prestigious film school in the country. Uh, I applied to USC at the film school, and I got in, and that blew my mind. Like I had, it was wild. Like, what did you have to? What did you sure. have to give them to get for your application? Well, first of all, I gave them like I think one or two of my stellar one act plays. Thank you. Um, and then actually, you had to write a short film script and a TV show. And so I wrote a short film script um, about a young girl discovering she was a lesbian 
um, and falling in love with her fa- her brother's fiance and like having to learn that like that relationship wasn't going to work out, but this is who she was. And then the TV show I wrote was an episode of Homicide. I don't know if you ever watched that show set in Baltimore. Yeah. I fucking love it's that like show. Free the Wire. Yes. It's so good. And the monologues, I am also a fan of good monologues. The monologues in that show, like Andre Brower is bringing some Shakespeare to his monologues in that work. It is, it is phenomenal. So I wrote an episode where Andre Brower's character um, had to confront, um, I think, a long lost kid. Um, who was actually being charged with a crime because that's it's a crime show. Um, but it was uh, wonderful to be able to learn how to write in those different ways because whether or not I ever write like that again or ever do film and TV again, um, I feel like I you can gather so many skills and you can figure out just where your storytelling like heartbeat lies even by writing another. So I found it incredibly useful. Um, did you, when you were in the program, did you, were you like, I am a playwright in this program or yes. did, did you, did you identify <laughs> that way? I did. Cause I am not very good at networking and knowing what to say. So I did, I was like, I'm a playwright who wants to write TV episodes so I can write my plays. And they're like, <laughs> Why are you? And I'm like, you gave me a scholarship. Hi. <laughs> me with my like Kmart bag over my shoulder and one suitcase. Um, I'm in California now. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, the fact is, is like I was an idiot, but I was lucky enough every step of the way to find a teacher and specifically a teacher who was like, even though you're a Dorcas, I see the value there. I, I, you know, I see the undiscovered gem, and so I'm going to give you tools, and if you choose to use them, then I think you could go somewhere. And so that is very much what I try and do when I'm teaching now. It's like, I can't determine for you what you're going to do, but I can give you these tools, and then you can choose what you want to do with them. You could choose to build something brilliant. You could choose to do something else. It's fine. Um, but I have found that I have been so changed and transformed by teachers that when I'm teaching, I want to give that to someone else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, keep, we keep circling back to how valuable teachers are. Yes. It's, it's incredibly important. And I think, and I know this is probably on my mind. I don't know if it's on your mind, but it's on my mind also because I'm an adjunct. And so many of the programs are using adjuncts now to kind of fill in the gaps. So they will give you the same teaching load as, you know, or very close to a same teaching load as full-time faculty, but not pay you full-time. And that's a problem because then you can't give the students the support they need because you're not getting the support you need to live. And yet the expectations are the same. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, which is, which is why... Uh, adjuncts need to organize more, yeah. unionize more, and it's just so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. But yes, yeah, so I was very lucky. So I went to film school at USC. I loved it. It was incredibly rigorous. I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually probably learned more 
uh, there, it's probably better for me that I went there than to a theater program because I always kind of had a voice and I always was really good at writing what characters were going to say. I was really good at dialogue and a setup, but I was not good at structure. I didn't understand how to line up characters, trajectories, so certain themes resonated. Like all of those technical things in storytelling, I didn't know how to do. And because film and TV writing can be so technical, there mm -hmm. was an emphasis, emphasis on those elements, and that was really beneficial for me as a writer. So what happened coming out of school? I came out of school, and um, I was uh, an, a writer's assistant to a writer-director who did a show called uh, Life of the Party, uh, Lifetime Movie. Um, my thesis script was very well received at Lifetime, but they couldn't figure out how to sell it. <laughs> and so what ended up happening was that when I got out of school and I wasn't as inundated in the school program as much, um, I started going back to theater more. And so after spending a year or so uh, working on these these projects, which were eventually released through Warner Brothers, um, I there was a new works festival called New Works Now, which I don't think is there anymore, but New Works Now at Center Theater Group, um, which focused on unheard voices. And so they were looking for uh, interns, literary interns. And so I applied. And <laughs> I remember Ignacia Delgado, shout out Ignacia, um, fabulous lady and super smart new work dramaturg brain administrator. Um, she was like, you have a master's degree. Most of the people who want these internships are like college students, mm -hmm. <laughs> undergraduate college students. I'm like, yep, I know. It's okay. I want to be here. And mm -hmm. she's like, but I'm like, I know it's weird. I'm weird. I've always <laughs> been weird. We're just going to accept that. And know that I will be a kick-ass literary intern um, because I started in theater and then went to film. And I would love to come back to theater and see how I feel about it. And she's like, great, you're in charge of the interns. Um, <laughs> and so, so it was great. We did the New Works Now Festival. Jessica Glassberg had a play in it. And she was lovely and kind and chatted to all the interns about playwriting life. And I realized that I really missed it. And that this is what I really wanted to do. And because on the West Coast, I was in a location where there were theaters where you could get jobs that would pay enough of the bills that you could actually work in theater full time made a huge difference, right? Location, location, location. Um, and so my uh, partner at the time, now my husband, was down in San Diego. And he had been asking me to move in with him for a while. But I was like, I don't know. It, like, if you leave L.A., you get out of the film loop and... Um, but La Jolla Playhouse, uh, which at the time was run by Des Mackinoff, um, was just doing like new play after new play after new play after new musical. They were just a powerhouse of new work at the time. And so I was like, I, I uh, told Larry, partner who became husband, um, I was like, I'd like to come live with you and not make any money for six months. How does that sound? <laughs> and he's like, uh, I'd like details. <laughs> and I was like, here's what I want to do. I'm going to do basically what I did in L.A. I'm going to go to La Jolla Playhouse, which is turning out all this incredible new work. And I'm going to ask for a job, whatever job they have. And that job may or may not pay much, but I'm going to see if I can work my way in there because they are doing the kind of work that I want to be doing. And if I've learned anything 
um, which I have a hard head, so I, I don't learn quickly. But when I do learn something, uh, and I've learned that I want to be in the room where it happens. Like, I am a great learner at seeing something and understanding how it works. So I just need to be in the place it's happening so I can see it, so I can understand how it works. So he's like, okay, we'll do that. We'll figure it out. So I moved down uh, to San Diego with him, and the only job open at La Jolla Playhouse was in house management. So I was a, a house manager for them for a season, and that was actually probably a really fantastic thing, although at the moment I was not thrilled to always be a house manager. Um, but I was able to see every single show every single night from the back of the house. I was able to see all of the changes that the directors put in during previews, and the playwrights put in during previews. I was able to sit in on rehearsals. I was able to get copies of the scripts. I was able to watch audiences and see how the changes affected every audience. So it was just a year where I just learned, I was learning 10 new things every day just by physically being in that environment. Um, and at the same time, I'd offer the literary office to read for them because coming from previous experience, I know literary office has got a lot of scripts and I'm like, I'm technically a house manager, but I'll, I'll read for free and I write really good book reports. And they're like, excellent, here's a pile of scripts. Um, and so after a year of reading um, for them, they made a position for me as artistic assistant. Um, so I moved up through house management and box office in front of house into uh, artistic assistant. And then I started, they started broadening the scope of my work. So I was assistant dramaturg on projects and eventually literary associate. So it was very much a not being afraid, to like, recognizing reality. I had to make some kind of money or this amount of money to live in this place, but not being afraid or ego driven, just saying, this is the art I'm interested in. I'm going to go and be a part of that art and figure it out. But why was it theater? What, why, why was it theater that drew you back when you started to dip your toe into the film and TV world? I think it's because film and TV is a dead art form. Like in terms of once you film it, that's it. Okay. I really love art that moves with an audience, whether it be um, interactive visual art, whether it be, um, but I like the type of art that can move and change with audiences and with time and from a night to night basis. Were you aware of this exciting. in yourself at the time when you, when you were like, I'm going to go to CTG? I was not aware of this. What I knew was that walking onto a movie lot and seeing a movie finish made me sad. And I didn't know why it made me sad. But I knew that it did. And I knew that walking into a theater space and seeing a show night after night after night, which I could watch the same show over and over, um, because it really is different every night, uh, made me happy. And so I'm going to go someplace that makes me happy rather than someplace that makes me sad, because either place, I'm totally fucking broke. Mm. So at this point in my life, I didn't have kids, right? I had like a car that was paid for and... That's what I had. So it was the time to take those chances. Mm -hmm. Could I take those chances now that I have kids and loans and a mortgage? Probably not. Um, but I was lucky enough to kind of realize early enough where my passion lie that I had a chance to figure it out. Mm -hmm. 
So, so as you're getting immersed in the theater at La Jolla and sort of like developing an artistic career there, did you find that having these, these jobs and, uh, of sort of like escalating Mm -hmm. responsibilities, helping your writing or impacting your writing in any way? I found they really helped. Now, in terms of time, because they do take a lot of time, I had to be better at time management. So that was a skill I had to learn so that I would make sure to carve out writing time for myself so that I didn't lose it. But it was so useful. I mean, I think one year, I think La Jolla, the first year I was the artistic assistant, like 800 unsolicited submissions. And we read at least the first 10 pages of all of those. And like very quickly, I recommend that all of my students be read for festivals, read for theaters, read on panels, because it becomes very clear what is working and not working, and even across aesthetics, right? What is drawing you in? What is gaining your attention? What is not? Um, You just learn so fast because you're looking at so many different pieces, and sometimes it's easier to see the weakness in other pieces than to see the weakness in your own. So if you can spot it in other pieces, then when you go to write, you can go, oh, I actually saw that mistake made by somebody. Let me do this a little differently. I also found, frankly, that because we're a small industry that depends on networking and who you know, I just met a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So like, I was able to um, ask questions. Like uh, Lucy Simon and Michael Corey came in to develop a show with Des, and so, each of them, I invited them out to coffee. I'm like, I'll buy you coffee. Could I just have half an hour of your time? I'm an emerging artist. And I'm adorable and I'm in my early 20s. Um, and they were like, and they were kind enough to say sure. So I got like half an hour of Lucy Simon's time where she talked to me and I bought her coffee and breakfast. And she talked to me about how and why she made the choices she did in the Secret Garden book for the musical. Like, it's just invaluable information and insight into process and idea and craft that I would never have had access to if I wasn't working in the administrative position. I know my, I I spent a decade working at Boston Court Mm -hmm. in Pasadena, and it was kind of like an emotional roller coaster for me from the artistic side of me. You know, I, I found uh, I found a lot of inspiration, particularly in the first few years, because I was developing as a writer. Everything yeah. I was learning uh, was feeding my my work. Maybe not, di- maybe some things directly. Like I was probably mm-hmm. accidentally ripping off some things. Uh, sorry, Carlos Mario in, <laughs> in dark and dark play, but I may have written <laughs> rewritten dark play. Um, but as I got as I got more developed. Uh, and, and found my voice, I started to, I don't know, become jealous of things I was seeing. And mm-hmm. uh, I would go, and, I, and it would ebb and flow. Like I always la- locked into process. And, yeah. and that's sort of what carried me through because I can always appreciate process but but the best thing was what you just said I had the same experience like Mm. the benefit of meeting people yeah and and what I learned was how generous theater people can be therefore I want to be a generous theater person as I grow and mature I'm asking for coffees right yes and they're and they're giving them to me and I am giving now 
like, so when I am asked, I am like, you know what? People gave me so much as I was growing and developing. I need to, I need to give back. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that that should be our mentality towards all artists. I mean, I'm biased towards theater artists. Sure. But like, that is how we really grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. The industry in capitalism is going to do what the industry in capitalism is going to do. And we have very little control over that. But what we have control over is our processes and our generosity towards each other and our own work. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I got to see Culture Clash develop a show from the ground floor up. I would just sit in the back of their rehearsal hall and watch them put it together Mm. because they were like, we're busy. We can't talk to you. And I was like, do you mind if I just sit in the back and watch you? And they're like, yes. How much I learned from watching them go through the first draft of a process Mm -hmm. will stay with me forever. So I'm with you. If someone asks for coffee, I always try and do it. With Zoom, it's easier now. Mm -hmm. I actually have had people send me Starbucks cards, and then we Zoom coffee together, and I love it. That's pretty great. Um, It's fantastic. Um, And also the generosity in um, going to shows. I I tell people, like, for every established playwright whose show you go see, go see a playwright you don't know or is their first show or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, we have to spread the love around um, because we're really the only ones we can depend on Mm -hmm. in the industry. So let's do it. I love, there was, oh, I'm so, I can't remember. It was a couple years ago, but there was this, there was a famous playwright who came to Philly, and I can't remember her name, but she um, required that the theater uh, do little 10-minute play excerpts before her speaking engagement. Of local playwrights. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, When Paula Vogel came to speak in Philadelphia, the first thing she asked was, who are your local playwrights? I want them to get free tickets to this event if they want to come. The best. The best. The best. Uh, I want to talk about when when you felt like your writing started to really... I don't know what the phrase is. Let me rephrase. Let me re-ask it. Uh, To suck less? Yeah. Yes. Like, when did your writing start to suck less? But when, like, when did it start to, I, I always phrase it this way, and I'm never happy with it, but when did it start to come together? Like, when did you start to feel like the machine of the playwright inside you is, is fully functioning? That's a great question. Because um, I thought it happened in college, but it actually didn't. Um, I just wanted it to happen so bad. Um, but I was a part of, and another shout out to Christina Meeks, who I don't even think is in theater anymore. Um, but, uh, Christina put together the San Diego Playwrights Collective and she had a friend who had an art gallery that was dark two days of the week. So she made a deal that this Playwrights Collective could meet in the art gallery when it was closed and put up workshops of things, whatever. And so that's where I developed Terrible Girls, which became eventually became the first play that was fully professionally produced, not by me. Um, but the three years that I was at La Jolla Playhouse, I was also a part of this Playwrights Collective. And about halfway through this collective, that's when I really started to feel like the playwright clicked in. Because every single Saturday, we were meeting just to make work and to share work. And that, that just like constant working at some point, it just clicked. And I was like, oh, this is what being professional playwright is. It's just not writing when you want what you want on it. It's like, 
it's it, there's there's the intent and the practice is much more rigorous mm-hmm. and so that's when i felt it click in and i think that that's why the terrible girls went from being a short play to a full-length play that did well is because i had that in my back pocket i had the not quite ten thousand hours but many many hours of actually doing the thing mm-hmm. so when that play started to uh, mm-hmm. make the rounds and you know yeah connect here and there how did that how did that feel that felt great and I also uh it felt wonderful it also was a nice calling card um it was one of those things where a lot of people liked it and enjoyed it and laughed and but they were like my theater will never produce this um and eventually I found a theater that would but it was also good to have a calling card that people responded to and again I think it's part of that just like hours and hours and hours of work um, it was polished when I sent it out. Uh, one of the things I've found, which I find really distressing in a lot of pro- professional theater, quote-unquote, regional theater settings, is that because of the limitation on hours of the administrators, they can only really give things one read before they have to make a decision. Um, and so having something that had that polish, I think, was really helpful in this horrible one-read system we have. I've made this mistake so many times of mm-hmm. burning a play before it was ready just because it was the one I have now. Yep. And it, and it could probably have benefited me to send nothing at the moment. Yeah. Well, it also depends, like, will they take it again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if it's something that when you, if you rewrite this, we will look at it again, then that's fine. But for mm-hmm. the one-shot places, yeah. Yeah. Those you got to be careful about. Um, yeah. So then we – so – it was La Jolla Playhouse. It was it was great. We're doing the Playwrights Collective. And then uh, my partner, then husband, got a job in Philly. And so we moved to Philadelphia. And we didn't know anyone, but it was where he got a job that made actual money. So <laughs> that's where we went. And I was just incredibly lucky that Philly has such an open and welcoming theater community. Um, I think I told you earlier, the, the first email I sent for coffee with a literary manager, Allison Heishman at Azuka Theater, that eventually did Terrible Girls, um, she was like, absolutely on me for coffee, of course. You want to chat tomorrow? Um, and that was the reception from a lot of people here, is that uh, they were very open and excited. And I also love that here we have a very wide range of aesthetics, so you can go see a site-specific show. You can go see a traditional proscenium show. You can go see a show in the park. You can go see. You can go to Solo Fest, which is people doing shows in their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt like a very welcoming community. Can you talk about how having this? Because I feel like this is not something I end up talking about with writers mm-hmm. who are parents, and and I often regret it. I want to talk about being a parent and being a playwright at the same time and and how that impacts you well I was very I have a stepdaughter and so I'd had a little taste of parenting before um I had my bio kids um but it was only part-time right uh very different full-time kids especially when they end up being twins um when the doctor when I was first pregnant the doctor told us we were having twins my husband looked at him and said no look again (laughs) (laughs) that was not the plan (laughs) plan was one more we requested one (laughs) um so it was it was wild um I was lucky enough that I had started to establish myself in Philadelphia as a playwright and dramaturg 
So I, I would have something to kind of come back to. But I did for the first two, two and a half years of the twins' lives, um, had to pull away from everything because having twins is crazy. Um, Were you worried about what might what that might result in as far as your career is concerned? I, I was worried about that, especially from stories I'd heard from other parents and especially moms. But for me, I also knew that in my you know, curly straw of a life journey. Um, every time I did something that helped me understand the world more and open my heart and mind to the world, my writing got better. And so for me, when people are like, oh, you may not go back, I'm like, maybe not, but I think I will. I think this is just another part of the deepening process. Um, and I very clearly had a partner who also was as committed to me being an art maker as I was. And so he was incredible at making sure he's like, uh, you know, I had my writing time on Sundays where he took the kids and there was no guilt and there was no nothing. And then as the kids got older, he also always prioritized my art, which is not something I see partners a lot um especially partners who have kids and I think that made an enormous difference because there was no rancor or bitterness or he's like no this is a real job and you're really damn good at it so if you want to keep doing it we will find a way um and so in the darkest moments he's really the one who pulled me through um and I do think that my writing is better because of my kids and my family, because of the choices we've had to make. Very different than single people choices. Mm -hmm. And so I wish that theater, and I think it's coming around to it, you know, you see the, the burgeoning success of people like Stacey Rose. Um, wonderful playwright, look her up if you don't know her. Um, you s and you s see that like people's life experiences lead them to create a different art, which is a really exciting thing to put on stage. So what I hope is that our community begins to value those experiences more. Um, you know, you look at Antoinette Nwandu, whose sh who show Passover is about to be on Broadway, and what people don't know about her is that she went through a lot of soul searching, and she went to the UK, and she tried a lot of different professions, and she, you know, she had a whole life journey before she wrote that play. Um, and so I hope we're getting to a place where we can value the life experience rather than putting it down and saying, you're too old if you're not hot by 30, you're done. While I have seen tremendous work from young people, I'm not, I'm not disparaging their work, that a lot of times in life, the warts and all is what's the most interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And thankfully through PAL, the Parent Artist Advocacy League, uh, the parents in the arts are getting a lot more support to be able to do their work and be good parents uh, because I would not sacrifice my children for a play I remember early on I had an artistic director who invited me to a development conference and the babies were like six or seven months and it was just too early and I was like I would love to come but I would love to postpone it a year uh, because I just think they're too young I don't want to be away from them for a month in the summer and the artistic director's like, well, then those are your priorities. I hope you don't want to have a career. 
And I'm like, no, I think those are my priorities and that's why I have a career. <laughs> because. Wow, that is revelatory about that person. Yes, ex- right? right? I will never do anything with them again. Um, but that it's really, this this is a good thing. It is a good thing that I'm deepening and learning about myself in the world in new ways. Mm-hmm. And I want people who value that. Right, and, and you're taking all this lived and learned experiences and you've put them into the book that you mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we come, why don't we circle back around to the book and talk about how, uh, it came to be in the first place. Absolutely. So the book is called playwriting with purpose. Uh, it's being published by Rutledge, but you can get it wherever books are sold. And so it was my, first attempt, and I hope people build on it, um, it was my first attempt to move us beyond the 1980s idea of how you teach playwriting, right? Like at that time, a lot of the books and playwriting are either from the 1940s, 50s, or the 1980s. And it's very much well-made play is the right play, rather than no theatrical experience is the right experience. (laughs) Well-made play is a part of that. And here are all the different ways you can explore theatrical performance so the book is a mix of like what I wish I would have had in high school and college as a young theater artist um, updating a lot of the canon saying here are great new plays that have been world premiered in the last 10 years and then here are great older plays that you need to read Mm. Um, I only listed things that are published or that um, have been performed and you can publicly available online to see because that was one of the biggest challenges for me is as I wanted to learn more, there would be all these references to great plays that were not published yet. And the publishing industry of theater is a whole other problem. Yeah. <laughs> like that's all, access to that is a whole other problem. Thankfully, we now have the new play exchange, newplayexchange.org. Um, so we can find plays that have not been published, which is great. Um, and then a lot of writing lessons and writing prompts based on those lessons. Plus, I have a chapter on the industry that's talking a lot about what we've been talking about here mm-hmm. um, and explaining the difference. Like, I didn't know the difference when I started writing applications between artistic mission and artistic statement and uh, artistic goals. Mm-hmm. I'm like, these sound like the same things. What are these? Um, and so it's basic information that we should just have out there but for some reason has never been compiled in one place Mm. so I'm hoping that whether you're a new playwright or a playwright who has written for a while but wants to push their work forward in the bigger industry world there's something in there in the book for you or playwriting teacher who wants to revise their curriculum absolutely it's super easy to revise I wrote it so it could be all done in one semester and I gave you all of the links to buy the books. Copy Boom. and paste, baby. Boom. Because I do think the teachers care so much, but they are so overwhelmed also, often by other types of work mm-hmm. that they don't always get to update their curriculum like they should. What are you distracted by right now? Are you, are you writing anything? <laughs> I am doing something new, which I'm excited about. Um, but is very different, uh, is that uh, Dr. Melissa Dunphy, who's a composer, and I got a grant from uh, Opera America and the Oberlin Opera to write an opera together. So I'm writing the libretto for an opera, which is crazy and fun and exciting 
and has been a lot of bumping into walls and then figuring out why my head hurt. <laughs> you know, I've read a ton of opera librettos. Um, and that's incredibly exciting. And it's another one of those I will always think of myself as a playwright, but I'm learning so much about myself as a writer and storyteller through working in a different form that it's been a joy. Um, and then I'm also writing a, a museum piece for on Am I Phillips. I don't know if folks know who Am I Phillips is, but he is a famous folk painter from the Northeast. Um, and he was one of the first kind of Western painters to go outside the major cities and paint the parts of America that no one had ever seen before and the people who lived there. Um, and I'm writing a piece for Throne Stone in Connecticut where and my helps was based but then we're going to tour it around to museums and so it's also a really uh exciting challenge to be like what will work in a traditional theater space but then also work in the museum space where hopefully they will also be showing mi's work mm. and then people mm. will go to see a play about that work and how it evolved um so i'm trying new things which i have to say i'm loving mm-hmm. i mean i may just be addicted to jumping off the cliff um but I, I think that as soon as I stop learning and growing, then what's the point? Thank you, Jacqueline Goldfinger, for inviting me into your house. It was such an awesome conversation. Um, really, their, their house is Sesame Street. It is such a cute little side street right in the middle of the city. It was, it was, it was amazing. I loved being there, I loved visiting. Uh, again, like I said, uh, find out more about her book, Playwriting with Purpose, at JacquelineGoldfinger.com. Uh, keep your eye out for her plays and anything else that she's doing because Jackie's a treasure. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Rob Weiner Kent and America Theatre Magazine for continuing to put these out. This episode was recorded and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is our associate producer. There is no music on this episode except for the theme song, which is High by International Pen Pal. The rest of the sound is just nature. The wind passing through the leaves and my microphone, presumably. The sound of the water lapping up against the rocks right by me. The sound of my dog probably shaking, making that noisy collar sound that happens when she shakes. But anyway, thank you for listening. I'll leave you with the peaceful sound of nature. I hope you're doing well. Take care. <laughs>